Glad to be here. Glad you're here. Just in case you hadn't seen uh, him in the back, we painted um, myself. Well, I really just pushed a big uh, like scaffolding around. I was just grunt work. But Jason Franklin, who has painted a bunch of this church, as you can see, we're like constantly in process. Just We think it's indicative of all of our lives. Pretty much got holes in the walls and stuff that is knocked down. And um, But Jason Franklin, if you see him, I've said he's the guy in the glasses that's really good looking. So any guy in glasses you see is good looking, just go, hey, Jason. He says, yes. Then you say, hey, just thanks for... Uh, for using your uh, your service to uh, your gift, I should say, to to bless the church because he has painted a lot. And yesterday he was spraying like crazy. And he was kind of goofy, and then I noticed he didn't have his mask on like half the time. And I'm like, it's full of paint fumes in there. I'm wearing a mask, and he's like, like <laughs> now I know why you're a painter, man. So he did a great job in there, and um, it looks really good. So just thank him. And Vicky was there as well, and I, we were just like pushing stuff. So. Uh, he did a lot of the work, and it was great. Uh, James chapter 1, uh, I'm going to begin uh, reading in the verses. We're going over just a couple of verses today, and we'll get right to work. Um, there's a study guide that I don't even think we have any more copies of, but if you'd like one, just email uh, info, and uh, info at damascusroadchurch.org will get you one. It's very helpful for some of the things I don't are not able to hit. So uh, we're in verse 19, James chapter 1, and I'll read it. Aloud says this, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Uh, as I said, we're nearing the end of the first chapter of James, where he spends most of his time, and you've seen this over the last five weeks, speaking about trials. Trials constantly um, are on James's mind, particularly because he is writing to a group of people. And if you read, as we read the book of James, you'll see it as fleshed out. He's writing to a, an audience or a church in particular that is going through all kinds of trials, very specific trials. There are things that um, they have, obviously, physical oppression is one, sickness, slander, lawsuits. Um, they are uh, being uh, mistreated un or treated unfairly, I should say. Their employers are taking advantage of them. Uh, so they are going through very specific trials. And a lot of this stuff is happening within the church, amongst the people who are in the church. And so uh, he is in trying to encourage them as they go through these trials. And it's encouraging to us in some way because it is very descriptive of just life, of our lives and the, and the trials we go through. And he says that people go through various trials or multicolored trials is what the Greek says, uh, which is true. And we go through these situations that we don't understand or don't like. And the fact that we don't understand what to do or don't know what to do is what makes it a trial. If we knew what to do, it wouldn't even bother us. We wouldn't even think of it or pause. And so James emphasizes the fact that, that people in the midst of these trials really have two paths that they can choose, that they have responsibility to take. One is a path that, that is dependent upon God's wisdom, and it's a path that is taking faith and choosing faith actively in God and His, uh, his know-it-all, if you will, or His wisdom. And the other is idolatry. The other is putting your faith in something that is not God. 
And I said last week, as he kind of laid out the anatomy of, of sin, how it works, every trial, big or small, little irritant or major disruption in your life, is both a temptation and a trial at the same time. And God is constantly working through testing our faith to build in us, to build faith, to build maturity. Even if it doesn't feel like that, He is constantly testing us for that purpose. And that brings good people and bad people, prosperity and poverty into our lives. And either one and all of the above are testing our faith. The prosperity of life, the blessing of life, the success of life is just as much a test of faith as it is to not have those things. And so as God is working to build our faith, Satan and sin are working to destroy our faith and to draw us away from God and away from His Word and tempting us through those trials. So as we learned last week, though, we have a tendency to blame everything outside of ourselves, but like the title of a kind of freaky 1950s film, which I really like, those B-movies, it comes from within, right? The, the sin is within us. It's not external. The problem is, is in our hearts, not outside of our hearts. And I think that if we ask today or we give a little, you know, kind of pop quiz, which I was famous for in my classes, if we give a pop quiz on asking people what their problems were today, you would probably have a list of a lot of different things. And they would be various or varying lists amongst all of us. But some of us would probably say, well, What's your problem? Well, my problem is my wife. This is my problem. Okay? She is not doing what I want her to do. She is not respecting me. She is not X, Y, Z. Or, my problem is my husband. He doesn't do this. He doesn't provide. He doesn't, or he does do this. This is one of my problems. Or, my problems are my kids. My, my parenting. My problem is my finances. I don't got enough. I can't pay my bills. My problem is my health. Uh, my problem is my reputation. People think certain things about me for whatever reason, and I can't fix that. Um, my problem is my car. I can't get a car that will continue to start. It starts like every seven times, which the seventh time is great, but six times prior to that causes a problem. These are my problems. And we would have these lists, and we would all feel bad for each other. And I don't think most of us, would say, or something that would necessarily be on our list would say, my primary problem is my heart and my sin. Now, some of us would say sin because we sin. We would say, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I know I sin, and it's a struggle that comes up occasionally. And when it does, I slap my hand or I confess and, and I get beyond it. But I don't know if we view, if the perspective of our life is to view sin as the primary problem in all of life and in our hearts, that it infects everything that we do. Um, our sinful behavior flat out, the sins that manifest themselves and the sins that don't, that are just in our mind that no one else knows, the sins that manifest themselves are a direct result of the fact that we do not consistently worship the one true God. Every moment you sin that's manifested is when it's evident that you're not worshiping God. Okay? So that's our true issue. In fact, uh, Ed Welch, who's a great author, wrote several books. He said that the biggest problem we have is that we have a worship disorder, which is a pretty good description of the problem. 
We have a worship disorder, and that should be numero uno on our list above cars and parenting and, and husbandry or wifery, whatever it is. We have a worship disorder. And despite what I like to call God's pure awesomeness, okay, despite God's pure awesomeness, we settle for what amounts to pitiful, pathetic desires. And we create, Calvin called our, our heart idol factories, we create all kinds of little, what we view at first as harmless little idols, we wouldn't call them idols probably, and we worship them. How do we worship them? Do we sing songs to them? No. But we do give our time, give our energy, give our money, give our hearts, which amounts to our hope is found in, our joy is found in, our meaning and identity is found in other things other than God. You can idolize so many different things, and that's the, that's the deception of sin. You can idolize fatherhood and take pride in that, and that being that I am a father, and that's it. And then your kids hate you, and you're like, I suck as a father, and that's suddenly your identity's lost. Because it wasn't taken, in the, it's not wrong to identify as a father, but if that is the core, there is a problem. And so, eventually what happens, and this is where I talked about last week, we give into these these little harmless idols, if we will, we worship them, and over time, they eventually grow up. And they begin to master us. These things we thought we could control. Sounds like an addict. And it should. We don't like to call ourselves addict, but I've learned that I think it's the best description of anyone who is an idolater, which is all of us. We like to say, well, the addicts are the people that drink too much. Addicts are people that look too much porn. These are the addicts. No, everyone's an addict. And the question is, what is the idol flavor of the month? Because an addict is a very good description of a sinner sold out to some idolatrous thing. So we're all addicts in some way. We're all mastered by something. And that's really what idolatry is all about. It's a question of lordship. It's a question of, are you mastered by the one true God? Is that truly your master, or are you mastered by your desires, whatever flavor those are? Because they take many different flavors. But when sin doesn't become our primary problem, then the gospel of Jesus Christ that says you are a sinner saved by grace and faith of what Jesus Christ did in your place... When sin is not the primary problem, the gospel becomes a nice story that's convenient, but it doesn't become the primary solution to all things. It becomes an extra. It becomes marginalized as unimportant and something we don't dwell on all the time, just every now and then, like on Sunday mornings. And instead, most of our life is spent working on managing our weaknesses and trying to get beyond. And we, in turn, ignore the spiritual battle that's raging in our hearts thinking we can fix it with external things. And Jesus becomes a therapist that will check in with every now and then and get some good pithy wisdom from. But He is not the Lord. He's just a good therapist. And James is trying to tell us you don't need behavior modification. That is like secondary to heart transformation that comes from hearing the Word of God is what we read last week. That is what changes a person's heart, the Word of God. The heart is changed by the Holy Spirit that comes and enables the heart to receive the Word of God and it births new life. 
He comes into our hearts. He opens our eyes. And He compels us because we don't want to to examine and repent of our idolatry. And I know people don't want to. There's all kinds of excuses. Some of the more common ones, I was just talking to someone about this, is instead of repenting, we like our desires so much, we'll say, well, you just, you hear people say, you just don't understand me. This is the way I was made. I've always done it this way. It's how I was raised. Those are just very common ways to say, I don't want to repent. I like my desires. I don't like the Lordship of Jesus, necessarily, who's going against those. But when the Holy Spirit changes an individual's heart, and you've seen it, you maybe you've experienced it, the Lord becomes more than a therapist, becomes who He's supposed to be, the Lord, the King, a conqueror, someone that we fear and that we love at the same time. Someone we fear and love at the same time. We revere so much, we know His power, and yet we are a little fearful, a little apprehensive, but then we know His love. And we want to be with Him. So, James is going to continue to talk about this in verse 19. I was asked this week why I break the Scripture down into such small chunks. You know, because you know, most pastors can go through James in like seven weeks and are done. Like, do you're taking like 19 weeks. That's a long time, okay? And here's why. Because I keep reading and I have to keep stopping. And I found that the more that I spend time, I mean, everyone, I don't know how much pride, somebody feels so much pride on shooting through the uh, Bible in a year. I think it's a great thing to do. But like, sometimes you read the books of the Bible and like, all right, I got done with that one. And we learn nothing. And I found that the more I take a verse and I mine that verse for the nuggets that are in there, I find that God starts chipping away and mining my own heart. And I begin to see more about myself. And I think it would be helpful for us to dwell a little bit on one or two verses rather than um, a bunch of them. But here we go. James 1, 19 and 20 says this again. Know this, my beloved brothers, colon, meaning here's what you need to know. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So at first reading this, when we've all read probably this verse many times or heard people say it to us, which is not good, but probably uh, common for some of us, at least for me. It reads like the book of Proverbs. You ever read the book of Proverbs? You like hear you know, a piece of wisdom and then you read another one. They seem kind of disconnected. It's not like some unifying theme around it necessarily, but they're still very good. And James says in particular, I want you to know this. Take note. <clears throat> and we do because I have my son memorize this verse, in particular verse 19. Okay? Be, every, every person be, be quick to hear, be slow to speak. And I'm having him memorize that because traditionally children... And some adults, many adults, are not very quick to hear and they're very quick to speak. And so my son will say stuff that, you know, is mean or, or my daughter and me and my whole family says stuff that is, you know, we don't mean or we mean in the time and we don't want out there, but we don't think about it. So what do we do? Well, I don't tell my son, hey, stop saying that and then move on. I say, what's James 119 say? What's James 3 say? And it makes sense because James is very much about um, teaching people to interact with one another and, and to love one another as, you know, you have the first commandment, love God. Second, love thy neighbor. And so he is about this. And I've received this. Uh, I've heard people quote this back to me from emails. Um, be slow to speak, Sam, or slow to send that email. Uh, I've heard it on phone calls, conversations where we're telling people, you know, be, be, you listen a little bit better. Be slow to speak. 
And so I read a lot of commentaries, which I, I do whenever I prepare. And a lot of commentators, not all, but many of them talk about these verses from this relational perspective. They go through and they're like, well, James now is talking about how our relationship with God translates into our relationship with people. And that makes sense, because as I said, James spends a lot of his book doing that, in particular talking about the tongue. James talks about the tongue unlike any other book of the Bible, because it's a very dangerous, uh, fiery... Uh, that's not mine. Now, um, but God, uh, without question, as our relationship with God plays itself out, it does manifest itself in other people, but... I think, without question, um, this could be talking about something else. But let's just talk about us for a second. And the fact is, we're not naturally very good listeners. I don't know about you, but I'm going to talk from a guy's perspective. And it's like a big, like, ongoing cultural joke that, you know, men can't listen very well. And I know that firsthand because I can't. When I was first dating my bride, um, I was the guy that, as she would talk, I mean, she's a talker. And we're both talkers, okay? We, like... Um, I'm a teacher at first and a preacher, and you guys get to sit while I talk. I mean, it's like, do you like to hear yourself talk? Yeah, kind of. So I talk a lot. She talks a lot, too. So we're like, boo, 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 all the time. Well, I learned really quickly that I liked talking so much that I wasn't a very good listener. So when she started talking, that was, like, boring to me, you know, because, like, I'm not hearing myself, right? So I would, you know, I could have a water bottle in my hand, and we're talking, and, and I, I say all my things. I'm like, okay, well, I'm done talking. I got my truth out. She starts talking, and she's talking, and I'm like, you know, playing around. You know, like, I'm, I'm bored. I'm looking stuff, and she's like, are you listening? And I could always go, Boop. I have like a recorder, you know, that records the last sentence they said. Of course I'm listening, honey, you just said this. And, you know, it worked a couple times, and after that, it's like, no, that's not what I said, or what I say before that. It's like, well, my recorder doesn't go back that far, so I, I don't know. So... <clears throat> What happens, though, I, and I've learned this as I become a parent. It, it's sad that I didn't learn it as a marriage, but my, my kids taught me this, and now I'm trying to implement it in my marriage, that most of the time we're, we can hear a lot, but very often I don't think we're actually listening to the heart of somebody through the words. We say lots of words. My kids say lots of words, but oftentimes when they're saying something, there's something behind that, behind those words that I don't like, that's where the heart is speaking. And so we don't hear the heart. It happens in relationships and marriages all the time. And I dismiss, there's like this cloud of words that come like, like, ooh, I don't like that cloud. And so because I don't like how it's packaged, I dismiss it. And go, well, I'm not listening now because I don't like what you just said. When the heart of it is actually truth. This all might be really poorly packaged and really, it's like looking at a present that's really, you know, you have all those presents laid out. And they're all packaged, and one looks just nasty, okay? But it's got the best present in it. But you'll never pick that one because you like the big bow over here, you know? And so you pick that one because it felt good. But in fact, you probably needed this package over here. That's what oftentimes we do. We dismiss stuff we don't like. We get an email. Maybe you guys don't get emails like this. I get a lot. You get an email, okay? And you don't like what it says because it's hitting on something. And... There might be truth. They might have been the biggest, you know, if you ever send me an email, I'm not talking about you. But they might have been the biggest jerk in the world, right? And what they said was just mean. But behind that, there might be some truth. And if you don't, if you're very, we're very quick to just dismiss it. And we're like that in conversation, emails, all kinds of things. I know that when I, I can fake listening really good. And 
as my wife is speaking, I am typically thinking, as soon as she takes a breath, I've got something to say to, you know, dissuade or denounce or, or tell her why everything she just says is probably off kilter. I'm thinking, I'm, not, I'm listening to myself, even though I'm not speaking. And the amazing thing about that is, obviously, it's destructive. But when we finally open our mouths, typically what we say is not very helpful because we haven't been listening. And it's interesting that, that Jesus made a point to say, and this is the kind of verse that we read really fast through. In Matthew chapter 12, he said, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. Now, I think he's often talking about salvation, but let's just take it very flat what it says. Give it a, imagine giving an account for every careless word you speak. And so our words, I think, become careless most often when we become angry. And we're, not think, we're thinking more about ourselves than what is actually uh, coming out of our mouths, or particularly the heart of the person that we're speaking with, because we're self-absorbed, and we are very self-centered, and we're very self-serving. So I don't want to dismiss, though, that earthly perspective, because I think it's a good verse for that. But in the context of the letter, I want to shift a little bit. In the context of this letter that James has been talking about, I don't think James is primarily using this verse to speak about our relationship with people as much as he's speaking about our relationship with God. Now, it's a little bit of a different way to look at it, but in verse 13, if we went back, if you remember, it said, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. So this trial comes, this test and temptation comes, the same word. And a temptation is intended to destroy you. A trial is intended to build you up. So you basically are saying, God, you're to blame for this problem I have. You gave it to me. You want me to fail. Or you haven't saved me from it. And in the midst of that, we, we deny what we already have heard God say. And we accuse the person, in this case, God. And we get angry. And I've seen this in friends who experience trials and they give up on a person or they give up on God or they give up on a church because it comes, it's become difficult and actually it's become contrary to what they desired. It didn't meet their desires. And they don't for a second, we, we don't for a second think, could it be my, tri- my, my desires that are off? We immediately think, There's a problem over here. Something's wrong with this trial. God is doing something wrong here. This person should not be doing this to me. And we never think of the desires, how they may actually be misperceived. They may be the things that are not true. And ultimately what happens is we give up to the desires, we end up devoting ourselves, we leave the faith, if you will, maybe not even like practically, we'll stay at church, we leave the faith and we devote ourselves to a self-made religion, Samism, Johnism, Thomism, whatever you want to call it, that justifies our anger and justifies that we've been hurt. And we devote ourselves to this because I'm not going to be hurt in my own religion. Consider if these verses said this, Let every person be quick to hear God, be slow to speak to God, and slow to anger with God. Well, what does it mean to be quick to hear God? 
Well, the opposite of quick to hear is slow to hear, which isn't like running slow, like I'm born, I'm just a slow runner, that's how I was born. It means unresponsive. You are hearing it, but you're not responding to it. I'm in a unresponsive, not trying to hear you, hear you. And the first implication here is that God has said something. That there's something to hear. And in verse 18, remember James wrote, if we went backwards, that the new birth comes from the Word of God. That life is in His Word. That He's given His Word that by its power we might see what reality is despite what we feel it to be. Despite what we see Despite what our experiences are, the Word of God is supposed to be the filter that we put everything through that dictates what truth is, what reality is, even if there's chaos here. The whole world is in chaos by nature of sin. And He's given our Word so that we don't idolize the chaos of the creation and that we understand the creation in the light of His Word. That we interpret it and not get confused by it. That is God's wisdom. And the point is this, we often go into the Scriptures and we ignore because God hasn't spoken specifically to our particular situation. He hasn't given me wisdom in this particular circumstance. And so we use that excuse to not do it God's way because He doesn't doesn't understand what my unique trial is. The Bible is not about living the perfect life, but it's about worshiping the perfect God who is in control of all things. And the question is, in the midst of a trial, are we quick? Are you quick? Am I quick to listen to God? Or are we quicker to listen to our desires? Because our desires, according to last week, are a little messed up. Hearing God's Word is more than though reading your Bible. and It's more than listening to a bunch of sermons. You can read your Bible. You can listen to sermons. You can even pray and communicate with God without listening to Him. Some of us have heard God's Word for years. And we've memorized a hundred verses from Awana on. And you still don't know what it says. And the others actually, should say some others, know it and just don't believe it. And you refuse to listen. The fact is, we tell God very often and actively, I don't want to hear it when His Word conflicts with our desires. When His words conflict with our desires, we play the la 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 la, I can't hear you. And we go about our own way and it leads, as James says, to our death. And we'll even sit in church sometimes and we'll sing songs like, The Lord reigns. The Lord is great. And then we'll go live as if we're great and we reign most of the week. Tim Keller, who's a great pastor over in New York, said it this way. If you are not willing to listen and humbly accept all of God's Word, you're not really listening to Him. You're not really listening to Him. So, being quick to hear God. But not listening doesn't mean that stops us from not talking. I'm an example of that. James warns us to be slow to speak to God. And remember, it's, it's tempting to take this verse and just apply it to people. Yeah, we've got to be slow to speak to people. Don't speak out. Proverbs 17.27, I think that's a good thing. It's good biblical advice. Proverbs 17.27 says it this way, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips. He is deemed intelligent. So you can be a fool and sit there and go, hmm. 
may not say anything, and people go, wow, that guy's brilliant, okay? That's the idea of restraining your tongue, because oftentimes we say things, and immediately once you put it out there, it's out there, ready to be disagreed with or denounced or what have you. And so, in in relationship with God, think about that, it's a little bit different. I don't think... um, James's command is to be slow to pray necessarily or to be slow to cry out to God. But I think typically when we say, what do we actually say to God? Oftentimes in the context of a trial, I think in the context of what James is speaking of, we speak judgment. Not judgment in a condemning way, but we encounter something that goes against what we feel. When we have desires that get like, I don't like this. Know what's going on? We are very quick to accuse and to make a judgment on whatever disagrees with us, whatever re- or whoever rejects us, whatever's hurting us, and we dismiss it and judge it, giving opinions to people, situations, or experiences as this is not the way things are supposed to be. Then we immediately dismiss the fact that God could be using that person that irritates you beyond all get out, that person that may even hurt you, that situation that's hard, that experience that you never expected to, in fact, shape you. We would never quit, because those are our desires. Our desires aren't wrong. It's the trial that's messed up. If this was gone, what if that's not an option? What if that's there intentionally by the grace of God? James is warning us, I think, not to be quick to judge the situation that you're in. Not to be quick to judge the situation you're in. Don't be quick to judge others, but don't be quick to judge God Himself. And we do that. Remember verse 13, James warned people, I'm being tempted by God. Right? He warned them, although God sends the trial, He does so for our maturity not to destroy you. To build your faith and to succeed, not to fail. We're not to blame God for our problems. But that's exactly what we do when we sit on judgment, sit in judgment on God for the situation that He could have stopped, for the desires that He hasn't taken away for years, for His apparent silence, or for our suffering. So I want you to consider something for a second. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Job. Job was a a godly man. Some believe it's the oldest book written in the Bible. But Job was a godly man, the kind of guy that uh, would pray for his children just in case they may have done something to tick off God. Wasn't living with them. They were grown. He was wealthy. He was respected. Satan comes to God one day and says, Hey, Job only loves you because you've blessed him. You built a little hedge around him. They're taking that hedge away, and he's going to denounce you. So God allows him to do so. And he has everything taken away. He has his children taken away. They're all killed. He has his wealth taken away. He has his respect taken away. His friends gather around to comfort him, and they're like, you must have done something really bad to screw up. And they're just like denouncing him. His wife isn't very helpful. She's like, you should just curse God and die. Okay? And then he gets boils. And if you've ever seen pictures of people with boils, it's not like a little scab. Okay? Oh, that's bad. No, it's like disgusting. And he's totally destroyed. 
So if anyone has the right to judge their situation, you would think Job does. Because it's proven that he's a godly man. Let's hear what Job has to say about it. And consider maybe uh, this idea of being slow to speak. In Job 7, I'm going to go through just a couple verses because the story of Job, if you read it, it basically has Job situation, then Job will speak, and then his friends will come and speak, and his friends will say stuff, and then Job will speak again, his friends. So I'll go through a couple. And Job 7 is where we'll start. This is after he's lost everything. He's in pain. And he says, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. He is in pain. He is embittered. James 23, 1-4. Again, he continues as he's talking with his friends. Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, God, that I might come even to his seat and I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Sound familiar? <clears throat> Let me tell you, God, why this is not the way things are supposed to go. Let me tell you, God, do you realize how much you owe me, God? How much I've done for you? I will lay my case right here. Here we go. This is why I do not deserve any level of suffering. Boom, 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 boom. And he continues. Now, I make Job out to sound like a bad guy, but he is a godly man through this trial more than I think I could ever aspire to be. But he's being real. Job 30 Verse 16, he says again, And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. Check this out. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You want me to die, God. And you look at Job, and you're like, man, I don't know if I would feel any different. And then God shows up. I hadn't talked this whole time, and God shows up. And God doesn't say, well, Job, let me tell you all the ways that you sinned and why you deserve this. God spends the entire time talking about himself. He says, let me tell you who I am, Job. And he does this for some time. And in chapter 42, Job responds. And he begins to see that he judged the situation quite wrongly. Knowing his situation, this is what amazing. These are Job's words, not anyone else's. Because we always want to go, Job, you should feel this way. That's just your own heart. But Job says it this way. Then Job answered the Lord in chapter 42, verse 1, and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who hides, I'm sorry, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have uttered what I did not understand. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Seeking wisdom. 
Verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now through this trial my eye sees you. Don't be quick to speak. It might be the very thing that God is using for you to see Him. Maybe for the first time. Even though you've looked godly for many years. Slow to speak to God. And then slow to anger. When things don't go the way we desire, we don't listen. We judge. And then we get angry. And God gets angry. Anger, Anger isn't sin. Jesus got angry. But men's anger is typically driven and rooted in sin. And anger, as many of you probably know, is always a secondary emotion. I shouldn't say always. Most of the time it's a secondary emotion rooted in something else. And we oftentimes feel embarrassed, so we get angry. We feel ashamed, so we get angry and defensive. We are fearful, so we get angry. We're insecure, so we get angry. There's all kinds of emotions that come up to make us angry, rooted in the fact that things are not going the way we desire. No one wants to be embarrassed. No one wants to be ashamed and found out. No one wants to be afraid. Everyone wants to be secure. Then we get angry in response to that. And I think most of all, or the root of our anger, is the fact that we cannot control things. We want to control things, whether it be controlling a person, controlling a situation, controlling our kids, controlling our job, controlling our finances. We feel out of control, and so we get angry. And some of us get angry and we cry out to God or we complain to others because we believe, according to our desires, things are not going the way they're supposed to. That's supposed to. Translated is things are not going the way we think that they should, is what it really amounts to. And for some, we process our anger externally. We get actually visibly angry. We have rage. We have abuse. Sometimes we're sarcastic. Oh, you guys is really sarcastic. He could be angry because it's a very good defense mechanism. We get irritable. And then some, some people process it internally. And internally, they withdraw emotionally at times. They get depressed. Or sometimes they just get bitter. They just sit quietly and they're getting bitter and they're holding resentment. And according to Psalm 32, it rots on the way. It just rots in there. Trials are, by the very definition, being out of control. That's what a trial is. And instead of listening to God, instead of declaring the truth of who He says that He is, and who He says I'm sorry, what he says he's doing, we get angry and we deny that God could possibly be in control of this. God could possibly desire this to happen. And without pause and without prayer, we get angry at a person, we get angry at groups of people, we get angry at a situation, whatever is causing us chaos, never considering, just as God asked Jonah when he got upset, he went to... You know, Jonah the whale dude, right? Gets spit out at Nineveh where he didn't want to go and try to wait, uh, run away from. Nineveh was a simple group of people. God said, go preach to them. He's like, Nineveh? Are you kidding me? That's like going into like, you know, I don't know, Babylon or today's the center of Iran and going, hey, Jesus loves you, okay? It's like, I'm not going there. He said, go. And if they repent, I'll forgive them. And he goes and they repent. He like goes straight through the city. He's like, 
Yep, God's coming, he's going to kill you. God's coming, he's going to kill you. God's coming, he's going to kill you. And they repent. And then he goes up on the hill waiting to see God wipe them out. Excited. Like, oh, here it comes. And he forgives them. And he gets angry. Are you joking me? And God says, do you have the right to be angry? We would never ask that question of ourselves. It's a desire. It's a feeling. Feelings aren't wrong. Might be. God asked Jonah, is what you're feeling right? I don't think Jonah responded real quickly to him about that. We never consider whether that irritation, that irritating person, that person that hurt us, that situation experience is in fact what God is using to change you. Is in fact a tool of God himself. And James says that men's anger, right there in verse 20, does not produce the righteousness of God. The angry man lacks what I think is just flat out humility. And his heart, he believes that he can do a better job than God can. He sits in judgment on God for situation, for all kinds. I can do a better job than God. And we actually want to be in control. We, we just want to be God. That's, and that's not like news. That's Genesis chapter 3. What was the last temptation of Eve? Well, this is good for wisdom. Oh, no, it's not going to kill you. It'll actually make you just like God. Ooh, that's attractive. You know, give me more. I like to be in control of things. I like to dictate things. The angry man fights against, I think, the very trial that God sends us. The very trial that he is, according to the James in the very beginning. Remember, I consider it joy when you experience trials. Because in producing endurance in you, that you might be made perfect. What is God's righteousness? Perfection. And we deny that this very trial that God's sending is a thing that actually He is using to make us whole. And we get angry. And when we get angry, we deny that whole thing. And our anger will not produce wholeness. Our denial and trying to hold on to things and control the situation will not produce the maturity that God wants for us. Spiritual maturity. So what's the solution? Verse 21, he says this. Therefore, knowing all this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. James instructs his readers to put away all sin. Just put it away. Push it away. Fight. Fight against it. The Greek talks about all filthiness. And one writer called it the abundance of naughtiness. I like that. Fight against those desires. And what is it that at the core we're getting rid of? It's not the little sins. It's not even the anger itself. It's the idolatry that's causing that. It's that thing that is pulling us away from God as the one true God to worship and to find meaning and joy in. And the core of our sin is the same thing that was the core of Adam and Eve's sin, which is the denial of God's Word. We read something like, consider joy that you're going through trials because God's maturing you. Oh, yeah, right. I don't believe that. What's the difference between saying that fruit won't kill you? There's no difference. It was a trick question. Did you pass or fail? Okay. We don't believe that. We don't possibly believe that God could be 
We couldn't find joy in that without question, but that God could be using that to shape us. And the word put away here is a picture of one taking off a dirty garment, taking off that, that sense of control, taking off the things that are making you angry, your judgment, and you hang it up like this filthy, dirty, naughtiness abundant garment, right? You hang it up. But that's not enough. You take off that garment and you put it off, you know, okay, you're naked or cold. And the minute you start feeling it, that's what you're going to do. Doesn't matter how stinky, yucky that garment is. Like, I'll put it back on. I know it smells, but man, it feels good. And you put it back on. And the reason why you put on that garment that's stinky and yucky and you know it, you know it's sinful, you know it's not good for you, you know it will lead to being master of your life, it's what's there. You haven't actually gotten a new garment. Romans 13 says it this way. 13:14 says that that garment is Jesus. It says verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on your Jesus suit and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You have to put on the Jesus suit. What's that look like? Here's the reality. When you are sinning, when you are giving into your desires, they are beautiful. The sense of control is beautiful. I like it. Everyone likes it. And when it's that beautiful, you can't just go, just not going to look at it anymore. And just grit your way through life. That's no way to live life. What you have to do is replace that thing that is beautiful with something more beautiful. With something more attractive. With something more glorious and perfect. And that is, James says, the Word of God. That's you, have to, you cannot not think about sin and just stay in neutral. You have to stop thinking about sin and start thinking about the glory of God and the beauty of God's Word and pray that the desires of your heart will change toward that end because it's Him who's going to change that. Philippians 4, I read this verse before. Paul's sitting in prison and he says the same thing James does. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Remember? And then he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request, pray to God, and God's peace will take away the trial. No. God's peace, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But the next verse, because you can pray, 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 go away sin, go away lust, go away anger. But the next verse, 4.8, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The only thing pure and excellent that I can think outside of this world and even within this world is God. That's where minds have to dwell. Where every thought is taken captive to Jesus. Not just every thought taken captive to not sinning. That's a hard life. I know a lot of people, and we'll close with this, are hearing me today and not everyone's listening. You're doing the very thing that James is talking about. And I, I know that every time I preach, to be honest with you. And you ignore the things that should speak to you. 
because you're judging everything that doesn't. Jesus warns his disciples about three or four times, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear. As if you could receive the Word of God speaking, the Word of God wrongly. We often approach, I think, the Word of God like we approach a self-help book. And we read it. And the things that are in line with our desires, we take. And the things that are not in line with our desires, we throw out. At the core of it, we're prideful. We are prideful. And James says here, that in order for the Word of God to root in our heart, to actually root and stay planted and grow in our heart, because it doesn't, it doesn't have to, we have to receive it with humility and with meekness. In other words, you have to submit yourself to the Word of God knowing that it's not going to agree with how you feel. You have to relinquish and admit and confess, which takes humility, that you are not in control. You're not in control. And if you try to hold on, you're only going to get angry. And it's going to lead you away from God. You cannot control people. You cannot control situations. You cannot control your own heart. And you certainly cannot control God. I'm not trying to take away from your responsibility to do actively certain things. But there's so much more in this world we cannot control. We need to accept that our hearts lie. But God's Word is true. We're to accept that we need to judge less, especially God in situations, and listen more. And we're to accept that we are weak and that He is strong. And we're to accept that despite what we feel despite how things look, despite the chaos that appears to be out of God's control, God does love you. Jesus loves me. This I know because my trials are going away. No, because the Bible tells me so, period. That's a beautiful song. Unapologetically truthful. Because there are times when I'm so tempted to go, God does not love me. <clears throat> If God loved me, this would not be happening. And we have to sing that song to ourselves constantly. Jesus loves me, this I know. Because it feels like it? No. Because the Bible tells me so. And I have submitted myself to God's Word. There is freedom and joy in that. It's amazing or difficult to think of having freedom and joy in submission. But in holding into control and things, all that's left there is anger and bitterness and disappointment. I love that God's in control. But I don't always love that. <clears throat> I'm going to close with this. And the band can start coming up. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, if you'd open to Psalm 34, and if you'd stand with me, I'd like to read this together as we close. <clears throat> I read this... Uh, I've been going through my own trials this week. I'd love to believe, I'd love to say that I'm like, you know, super Christian and that, you know, I go and preach Sunday and then like the rest of the week I'm just like, you know, living, living large. And it's not. I have my own trials. I have my own difficulties. I have my own doubts. I have, there are times when I want to judge God. There's been more times where I've tried to judge a situation as leading this church um, than I have ever before. 
And I'm recognizing that I'm not in control more and more every day. I would love to control like how well this church does and, and meeting people and having their hearts change and you know and I just it's not in my control, but I certainly doesn't stop me from trying to put the Savior cape on and doing that. And I do that a lot. Freely admit that. And so I had a good uh, I had a good cry this week, to be honest with you. And I'm not a big crier, but it's like one of those cries that um, overwhelms you. Overwhelms you. And uh, where you get the ugly face and you just feel it you know, rising up in you and you're like, uh-oh, here it comes. And that's what happened. And it was because of this song. And so I realize that there's people in, in trials right now. We all have our own. Some are sickness. Some are prosperity. Some are poverty. Some are just irritating relationships, broken relationships. Some of you are sitting in bitterness. And some of you have exhibited anger externally. And all I'm trying to say is that God is in control. And I pray that you relinquish it to him. Despite what seem, things seem like. The psalm, I'm only going to read the first ten verses and we'll read them together. And I want to read it because this is where David, I preached on it. It's a sermon called God is Tasty. You should download it. He's in a cave right here. He has been anointed by God to be the next king. This has happened already. And the current king, Saul, is trying to kill him, although David has done nothing but serve him and done nothing but love him. And he's getting hunted by the king. He runs off to his enemy. He's getting hunted by them. Then he goes and he runs into a dark cave by himself. And how easy it would be for him to sit in this cave and to be complaining and bitter and angry. And people start coming into his cave people he didn't expect, who have the same kind of disappointments, they have financial problems, people don't like them, all kinds of things. And he writes Psalm 34 and he, and he reads or speaks it to him. And here's what he says. I will bless... Oh, sorry, we're going to read it together. What about that? Go one more. One more slide. There we go. It starts on the I right there. If you don't have the ESV, don't read it out loud because it'll sound weird. So read it off the screen. I'll try to read slow. Together. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. All praise to Jesus.